Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, another quick update from our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. We are grateful for Brick Lane's support through the weekly episode, Storytime. Did you hear Daniel Norcross's wild 904 triumph? Are you kidding me? Start with Storytime 59 and then follow it up with Storytime 60. Totally worth it. And also, the daily episodes. Adam and Jeff have been super busy. You can find all of those, the daily episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can watch them on the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel. There are currently 23,000 subscribers. We'd love to get that to 25,000. So if you are not a subscriber to the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel, please stop by, check it out, and if you like it, subscribe, and then you'll never miss a video. In cricket, there are great partnerships. Podcasting is no different. It's the partnership between the show, Adam and Jeff, the sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing, and you, the listener. I'd use your name, but I don't know who you are, but thank you. In addition to subscribing to the YouTube channel, please check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Say hello and tell them the final word sent you. You can order all your Brick Lane favorites at bricklanebrewing.com. It's a super easy way to get your hands on all of the various brews. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the final word. And as always, thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the final word. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. It's the Final Word Cricket Podcast. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. The Ashes are here for the summer of 2021-22, which is why we're recording a little bit earlier in the week than we ordinarily would, because much of what we say on this show could become redundant in about two days' time, which is why we're making The Daily Show, Jeff, one of many shows that we are making over the course of the next couple of months. Weekly shows, story time, uh, daily shows and live shows. In fact, Jeff, uh, before we go anywhere, and we've got a lot to talk about, uh, Jez Patel took a 10 for Christ's sake, and as I've already mentioned, the Ashes are starting in two days. We've got Tim Peach from the BBC uh, joining us to talk about uh, a project he's been working on in and around the Ashes too. We should say that we've had to make uh, an unfortunate but necessary change to our live show schedule. Hello, Jeff. Yes. Hello, Adam. Um, if anybody can hear some sounds in the background, that's the sound of freedom. I'm, I'm out of isolation. Uh, there are crickets, um, not the cricket, but some crickets. Uh, there's a large fat fruit bat that just landed in the banana tree. It's tropical Brisbane at its finest. So that part is all well. What's not so well is that when you go to Adelaide from Melbourne now, you have to get COVID tested and then isolate until you get your result, which means that we cannot do a show in Melbourne on the night of the 13th, fly to Adelaide on the 14th and do another show on the night of the 14th. Um, We won't be in Adelaide again, so that one we can't move. And the only thing we can do at this point is move the Melbourne show, unfortunately. So if you have booked tickets and you want to come to the new date, those will be honoured. If you want to get a refund, we can arrange that. The new date is the 12th of January. It's a Wednesday. It's between the fourth and the fifth tests, given that we know at least, well, we're pretty sure we know that the Perth test won't be in Perth. It'll be somewhere else. Therefore, we'll be able to be in Melbourne a couple of days after 
the Sydney test. Yeah, breaking news, Claxton. Jeff, you've been uh, you've been elsewhere for the last couple of hours. There, there definitely is no Perth test. Cricket Australia announced it late this afternoon. The fifth test venue is TBC, but this is one of many bits of news that have been doing the rounds around venues and borders and border bingo, I suppose. Well, since Omicron, really, but specifically since Friday night when a story was doing the rounds saying that South Australia was going to slam shut to Victoria, New South Wales and the ACT. And we, as one, shat ourselves, thinking that, uh-oh, no one's going to get into the Adelaide test either. Of course, Jeff, you would, coming from Brisbane, but the vast majority of reporters mm-hmm. have chosen to do the Brisbane test off television instead of doing the 14-day isolation period or hotel quarantine that you've just done. So that, mm-hmm. that was a worry. Uh, the South Australian government did hold its nerve, but that extra speed bump, as they described it, with the extra test does mean that we just physically can't do the, the show on the 13th. But yeah, the good news is the seafarers are, uh, are fine people and they are going to accommodate us on the 12th, which is two nights before uh, what will probably be a day-night test match uh, starting in Melbourne. Or if it's in Tasmania, we will go to Tassie uh, on the 13th and so it goes. But it won't affect our ability to conduct mm-hmm. a live show between the 4th and 5th Ashes test matches uh, at the seafarers in Melbourne. Yep, and we will be sure to have an extra good time. It'll give us more time to plan and prep it. So if you are free to come along on Wednesday the 12th, please do. If you have any concerns or questions about tickets or timing or scheduling or whatever it is, um, drop us a line in one of the many ways that you can get in touch with the final word. Finalwordcricket at gmail.com. We're on Twitter. We've got the patron DMs. We've got the Discord. If you can't get in touch with us, there is a problem. It probably means you're bad. <laughs> so hopefully that's not the case. But everything everything is going bananas. Um, there's some very entertaining stuff from the WA government before the last nail got hammered in, saying that they should swap with Adelaide and have the Perth test in instead of Adelaide so that everyone could go from Brisbane to Perth. A little bit desperate, a little bit late in the day, really just playing for the home crowd, you would have thought. But, like, haven't we had enough of this? The, the, the only tough border we want in Australia is Allen at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I, look, it, it felt like they knew what was coming and they wanted to claw back a little bit of political capital uh, because fundamentally when the Premier spoke last week and declared that they'd need to do 14 days in, in quarantine, there was physically no way that test could take place. So... It was a matter of how they got out of it, CA, and how they announced the, the withdrawal from Perth, if you like, and um, that's been done via media release quite respectfully today. But the way I'm seeing this, it just really does confirm everything that we've said about the scheduling of this series for about three months now. Queensland, for about two hours today, gave the impression that they were going to open their borders at 80% in keeping with what Victoria, New South Wales and the ACT did. Uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk, the Premier of Queensland, put out a tweet saying there's going to be huge news at 2pm and we're all thinking, well, you know, they're at 79.6%, or sorry, 78.6% double-vaxxed. There's a pretty high probability they're going to hit 80% the day before the test or the day of the test, which would mean that people could cross the border and be part of it in Brisbane this week. Instead, the announcement when it was made at the press conference was that they won't be opening the borders until the day after the the Gabba test, which is kind of cruel and unusual punishment Mm. for cricket fans from around the country and us professionally as well, I suppose. But it's it's not really about us. It's about the fans who could have gone to Brisbane at the last minute. And I'm sure many thousands uh, would have done so given it would have suddenly become the first open 
uh, test match uh, for a couple of years since COVID. But yeah, it reinforces that Brisbane always should have been the fifth test match. Queensland was always going to be open in time for that without any restrictions. Perth was never going to be open in time for the 14th of January. And they could have had the players coming into New South Wales or Victoria or the ACT and avoided 14 days in hotel quarantine. Remember, it's not just the England team who copped that. It was these world champion Australians who just won a T20 World Cup. And instead of getting to enjoy that, I'm not talking about Mm -hmm. all of them, but those who were also selected for the Ashes, so roughly half the squad, um, suddenly weren't able to spend time uh, with their families and and lapping up what had just happened and having some meaningful time off. They were back in quarantine for the umpteenth time. And that was all thoroughly avoidable. We've talked about it on the show time and again. And today, that that announcement from Queensland just reinforced that it was never going to happen. It was a pipe dream that people were going to be able to get into Queensland without 14 days of of quarantine. And here we are. So all we should be doing now is just hoping beyond hope that South Australia stay the course, uh, that they don't shut the border... Evidently, there's a stoush going on between the Premier and the Premier's office and the, the health department in South Australia that I suppose the political wing is winning at the moment. And from here, we just have to hope beyond hope that South Australia stay the course and retain the position that they expressed on on the Saturday morning. Otherwise, that test match will unfortunately be affected by, by COVID as well in ways that we didn't expect before Omicron. So uh, fingers crossed things stay as they are in Adelaide. Not least, Jeff, because we've got a live show that's still going to take place there uh, on the 14th of December with Stephen Finn, three-time Ashes winner, and we'd love that to go ahead. And it should, really. There's no reason from here that things will change in South Australia. But yes, it's been a scrappy week. Just when we thought all this stuff was behind us, uh, there's been yeah another week of, of talking about state borders when I mean, I wish we were talking about anything other than that that two days before an Ashes series is about to start. Back we go, back into the mire. We're just living the same year over and over again. And as you say, a lot of this could very easily have been anticipated and CA are not always fans of doing that. The bullet and their foot are often friends and they like to make sure that friendship endures. Can I just just jump in and say, I, 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 I just want to say one more thing on this. I sincerely hope the reason why the Gabba test is in Brisbane this week isn't related to some bullshit, we'll fucking get him at the Gabba. I really, really hope that... And we'll never know, I suppose, Mm. will we? We're never going to get briefed on the private conversations that took place between the cricket wing of the business and the administrative side of the business. But I sincerely hope this Mm. wasn't to do with the fact that India didn't play at the Gabba initially. They had a bit of a head of steam by the time they arrived in Brisbane and, and Australia lost their first test match there for 32 years or whatever it was uh, in, in January this year. I really hope that it wasn't some sort of machismo, fake machismo, you know, oh, well, get those fucking pommies up at the Gabba and we'll fucking have them. I hope this has been a decision that's not been mm. informed by all that bullshit. And if it has, I hope England rock up and it is a green top in two days' time <laughs> and, and it is rain-affected and, and they have their way with Australia's <laughs> top order. It, it'd be appropriate comeuppance. Well, I, I would be very surprised if it was not a significant factor. Not to necessarily say that the decision was made on that basis, but... And I reckon that wouldn't necessarily have been coming from an administrative push if you ask the players particularly if you ask you know the ones whose whose jobs were on the line like I mean with some irony the captain um, who who didn't even make it to the ashes if you asked them what they wanted did they want to start off against England in Brisbane they were were probably willing to do the quarantine in order to have that Mm. and and, 
you know, and, and the quarantine they had in Brisbane wasn't going to be much different to what they would have had to do in Sydney or Melbourne anyway because they would have had to stay away from people regardless. They would have had to have uh, cordoned themselves off so that there wasn't a risk of the virus getting into the camp. So I think they probably would have looked at that and said there's going to be some advantage to this and not a huge disadvantage to this. I'd, mm. I'd be very surprised if it wasn't a factor. Uh, Jeff, before we move off Ash's chat, before we come to the biggest story of the week, Australia have named their team way ahead of time, which is kind yeah. of kind of in in vogue at the moment. The idea of well, you know, you know how sometimes like um, some captains and some teams like to name their team at the toss, and Tim Payne was big on yeah. that. Pat Cummins has gone the other way entirely and named it on Sunday afternoon ahead of a Wednesday start, uh, confirming that Mitchell Stark mm. will play, not Jai Richardson, not Michael Nisa. Uh, we knew about Travis Head batting five ahead of Usman Khawaja a day or two before that, but that was the, the, the final pieces of the puzzle. I felt, Jeff, with the Stark-Richardson bit especially, it almost became a, a situation where it would have been such a massive deal had Stark been omitted because this this ongoing... Well, we've, we've discussed it before on the show, haven't we? In Australia, for some reason, store way too much in a player missing a test match. You know, India, under Kohli, India mm-hmm. seldom picked the same team twice. Bowlers are chopping and changing constantly, including champions like Ashwin in, in the recent series in England, for example. And it's a story, but it doesn't get written up as, all oh, Ashwin's been sacked. It's that Ashwin has been yep. left out on team balance. In Australia, if Stark hadn't have played at the Gabba, it would have been Stark sacked. You know, selectors give way to pressure from, from Shane Warne and, and co. Or, or whatever. There yeah. would have been some version of that story. Selectors swing the axe. Stark chopped off at the knees. He'll never play cricket again. They took his thumbs, Adam. They <laughs> took his thumbs. And, and, and all of this over the top. I mean, how about Mitchell Stark's the best pink ball bowler in the history of day-night cricket? Back-to-back test matches, here's an opportunity to let him get into the series mm. at the second test in the same way that Josh Hazelwood played the second test of the Ashes in 2019, and that worked perfectly fine. And all the talk of squad mentality, yep. seemingly, on fast bowlers, has gone out the door because Stark, of course, is going to play at Adelaide, because that aforementioned record. Yep. Cummins will play, and there's no way they're dropping Josh Hazelwood, who's your set-and-forget man. So really, for all the chat around not making, not going down the same route as they did last year against India, I'd be flabbergasted if there's mm. Even any consideration of a change until Boxing Day. Well, there certainly won't be, yeah, as you say, in the, in, in the first two tests. Maybe they think about it for Melbourne, but Melbourne is where they should have done it last year, probably, to, to give Stark a break then and didn't. Uh, you've got, you're pretty much back to back to back all the way through this series, so it's it's going to be very difficult for anyone to back up. You know, Cummins is going to need to manage his own workload very carefully to, to try to be there for all five tests. It's a, it's probably a little different to you know when he's, you know, he's played all five in the last two Ashes series that he's played, but there have been gaps. There were, there were a couple of eight or nine day gaps in 2019 when they went off to play a tour match that he didn't play and that sort of thing. You know, the, what the biggest break they've got in this one is what, four days between test four and five and yep. then five or is it five or six days between test three and four? I think they, so, get, well, they, they finish in Adelaide on the, on the, on the 20th and play on Boxing Day. So, I mean, there, there are six days there in theory, right? Um, yeah. But still, I mean, that's complicated by the fact that the squad 
spends all that time together through Christmas anyway, right? They don't go their separate ways. They all go to Melbourne uh, and all the rest of it. Mm. So, I mean, yeah, it just, it, it just felt sensible to me that with Michael Nisa in the squad uh, and, with Jai, yeah. and with that experience at the Gabba, on a pitch that's almost certainly going to suit a bowler like Nisa, and we'll come to the pitch in a minute, or Jai Richardson, the player in form right now, that there was an opportunity to... And the player who bossed it up there when he played his first test. Yes, that's you know, correct. A couple of years couple, ago. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. There was a chance to you know, sort of walk the talk of squad mentality and not be mm. cowed by Warren and co and say, no, 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 Mitchell Stark's mm. playing next week. This week we're going with this team because we think it's a better mix. And, and also also a chance to bank themselves some, some credits, some rest credits, you know, to put a bit of rest into one of their main three early so that they could then have a bit more room to shuffle later. Yeah, that, that, that's right. I mean, that's right. It's an investment in the future, isn't it, when you do something like that? And I used a Josh Hazelwood example who, in, in 2019, they knew exactly how they were going to play that. They wanted Hazelwood coming in for Lords uh, with an extra week under his belt to be able to play the next four, and, and so he did and did it magnificently, taking his wickets, I think, at, at 21 through that series and was crucial in the fourth Test match when, you know, they needed someone to stand up on that final day at Manchester. It was the guy who had a bit more rest from earlier in the series, and, and so it goes. But, yeah, I mentioned the track before. I mean, there's that annual photo of the pitch uh, at the Gabba two days out where we all go, ooh, you know, mm-hmm. and we all get very excited about the green the top. Green mamba. Just the difference. The, this, green mamba. the difference this time is, Jeff, is that according to, um, according to the forecast, that pitch is going to live under covers for the next two days. I mean, you're there right now. You're, right, you're there in Brisbane right now, and you're, yeah. you're experiencing the climate. And maybe I, I can't hear any rain on on the roof uh, that you're sitting underneath. But, I mean, the forecasts are for two no. more rainy days, which could mean that the pitch does retain that green tinge going into the first day and could have a fair bit more juice in it than otherwise would be the case. I still don't think it's going to happen. I just think we've been burned too many times before. It's the old George W. Bush, fool me once, shame on you, <laughs> fool me twice. <laughs> well... You're not going to fool me again. Um, By now, this is about fool me about 13 times at the Gabba. There's always, you know, I noticed that Crash put up a photo about five days out saying, oh, it looks green. Yeah, of course it looks green, Crash. It's five days before the test match. They will mow it more. It's rained a little bit the last two or three days, but mostly it's been pretty fine. There's been some sun. I, I just think it like maybe it'll be a bit sticky and a bit stodgy like it was in 2017 um, with that slightly underdone wicket, but I don't think it's going to be seeming around. I think, I think everybody's getting excited over nothing, but that's what preview episodes are for. Yeah, they are. And I, I suppose how I'd look at it is that Dan Brady's got a cracking yarn that's gone up uh, this evening uh, on the Age website that this mm-hmm. Kookaburra ball has been designed, purpose-built to have more in it than the ball from 1718. So they were worried that the Kookaburra in 1718 didn't swing and seam for long enough. So they've added I mean, and I'm, you know, shorthand here, an extra layer of lacquer. And they reckon that extra millimetre mm-hmm. could make the ball behave more like a Duke's ball. Now, because Australia have named their 11, coming back to that a moment ago, Marcus Harris, nicker. Travis Head, nicker. Cameron Green, not yet established. Alex Carey, on test taboo. David Warner, record recently against England, albeit in England, very different circumstances, but nevertheless, that'll, that'll be a factor. And then you kind of mm-hmm. got your, your stars in, your established stars in in Steve Smith and, and Marnus Lavishane on his home ground, who played an extraordinary innings on a green top uh, in, uh, in Shield cricket a couple of weeks ago. The reason I raise that is that mm-hmm. so much goes into NASA insane 2002 Gabba bowling first. 
because that day when the coin came down on a hot day, well, that day it was Langer, Hayden, Ponting, Damian Martin at the peak of his powers, mm-hmm. Steve Waugh, the captain at five, uh, Darren mm-hmm. Lehman back into the team at six, and Adam mm-hmm. Gilchrist, you might have heard of him, batting seven. This is mm-hmm. not that Australian team. If, Handy. if, if, if this track looks like it might have something there for the quicks on morning one, anything at all, armed with the idea of it being a cricket ball that is going to be a bit more giving than the ordinary kookaburra, which, you know, as we know, is kind of a flat thing that, uh, that, that deflates after about 12 overs. But if this ball is, and I assume they're practising with them, has a bit more to it, if I were England, I'd be playing to my strength. If I were England, I'd be going, look, let's roll out a bowling attack of experienced outside edge hunters. Mm-hmm. Anderson, Broad, Wokes, mm-hmm. Robinson, Fucking play them all. You know, in the same way, talking about squad rotation, you will need a holding bowler at Adelaide. We know that for the day session. So that's why Leach would be in calculations there. And we've seen extra pace with the pink ball can be a big factor as well. Thus would. But I would just go, look, first Mm -hmm. test at the Gabba, not a free hit. I'm not putting it quite in those terms, but play to your strengths, England. Play all of your seamers who are experienced, all in great nick, against an Australian top order mm-hmm. who like to nick it and are not, uh, I would not call them um, set and forget in terms of where they've been put in the order. This isn't 2002. I'd love to see something bold like that. I'd pop them in. Yeah, okay. I, I <laughs> well, you know that I've talked many times before and I won't go into depth about it again, about how there is a massive amount of confirmation bias about losing the test when you bowl first yes. as opposed to losing it when you bat first. No one roasts a captain who chooses to bat and loses. No one says, oh, they lost because they chose to bat. NASA Hussain's team got bowled out for, I think, 94 in the fourth innings of that match. Had they batted first, it wouldn't have made a bit of difference. They would have no. still got smashed. They were... They were up against a much better team with a really great bowling attack that would have bowled them out. That's almost inevitably what what would have happened. So in this case, maybe, you know, maybe that's the go. The only thing is, okay, you've named those four. You've got Stokes as well. Yep. Chris Silverwood might say that's not enough seamers. Can you get any more seamers into the team? That's only five. Well, um, well, the thing with Stokes so is... is there a, a way that you could play a few more quicks? Well, the, I guess the thing with Stokes is the idea that Stokes is playing is meant to be a guarantee for Leach to play. And I totally get that. But I don't see this as a normal test match. I see it as a test match. Australia haven't played yeah. since January. There's going to be rain mm-hmm. about day one, day two. Again, provided the forecast even is close to yep. accurate, it's going to be conditions where mm-hmm. seamers do well. England have played a lot of test cricket in circumstances just like this against mm-hmm. India and accounted for themselves really well um, in test matches where it did um, nibble around uh, earlier in the year. Anderson mm-hmm. abroad with all their experience. Robinson, who really is a fine cricketer at landing it on a hanky. And then Chris Wokes, who, on the evidence of what we saw against India at the Oval, is right there at the moment. He is bang on the money, Chris Wokes, right now. He is fit as a fiddle, and that's important. So mm-hmm. I would think that you wouldn't do it for the second test because, you, again, you do need a spinner at Adelaide, I think. But I think as a one-off push, I would sincerely consider yep. it. Maybe the reason Root won't back that in is because he actually did this at Adelaide in 2017. I think people misread Adelaide more than misread Brisbane. I think at Adelaide, people get a bit ahead of themselves by playing their most seam-heavy attack they've got, and they undervalue the importance of a spinner. Yeah. All you need to do is look at the record of Nathan But they Lyon also bowled poorly. They did. I mean, Root, Root got let down. He, he they bowled too short. He, he put Australia in. 
yeah, brought an Anderson bowled short all through the first session um, and barely pitched the ball up at all. So what can you do? I, I, w- I would counter your suggestion with this. In 2013, when Mitchell Johnson went nuts at the Gabba and was scary, people remember that. They sort of don't really remember that he only took four wickets in that innings. He didn't rip through it. But who was the second most influential person in that England innings? It was Nathan Lyon. Nathan Lyon. Who bowled really well and who got bounce and who picked up Cook and Pryor in quick time. Bell um, around the corner. Another one, I think, in the middle order. And that also changed the complexion of the match. That let Johnson come in and finish it off and then Australia had a big lead. So... Uh, Leach as well, he turns it away from the edge. One of the few things that can make Steve Smith a bit mortal is the ball turning away from the edge of his bat. You know, that can get him sometimes. I think having that option, you know, if Smith gets on another one, like they've got to, they've got to focus on him. You know, he's he's going to be the key piece at Brisbane as he was last time around. So I think having the variety of a spinner at Brisbane where you can get a lot of bounce um, and where you do have a left armour turning it away could be more valuable than having your fourth quick looking for the outside edge. Yeah, I I definitely show that point of view as well. Smith has statistically got a record against left arm finger spinners, which isn't as good as any other discipline, if I recall correctly. So that that might be how they frame it up as well. And I reckon in, in 2013, it was the fact that it was day two, it was quick, it was a cauldron, it was cloudy, it was gloomy, it was kind of that, that middle session of day two that you're referring to. On day one, it was blisteringly mm. hot and Stuart Broad took five for spit. So it's obviously hard to six compare. For, six for, was it? So, you, you know, you can't really compare series to series, team to team. I, I'm just thinking about this particular mm. Australian eleven looks to me and again it's no reflection on Travis Head and Marcus Harris by the way it's just the fact that neither of them have quite cracked the code at test level yet they might this series and good luck to them if they do Hmm. likewise Cameron Green and Alex Carey might be a star a la Adam Gilchrist when he walked in at roughly the same age back in 1999 it might work beautifully they might have nailed it but Mm -hmm. if you're going to if you're going to exploit a batting lineup like that day one on a pitch that might be just a fraction underdone with this allegedly um, this ball that might have a bit more in it with four seamers who've genuinely got the skills to pay the bills. I don't know. I'd be keen on them trying to play their trump card front up and see what happens. And if it doesn't work out, you know, they're going to hear about it for 20 years. But if it does, they, they might just find a way to discombobulate the Australians at the first time of asking. That's, that's all we can ask for is discombobulation. Uh, we've accidentally gone into this for 20 minutes, so let's talk <laughs> about a left-arm spinner who definitely did get picked, uh, Arjaz Patel for New Zealand, who became the third player in uh, men's test cricket to take 10 wickets in an innings. Jim Laker in 1956, Anil Kumble in 1999, and now Ajaz Patel, 10 for 119 in Mumbai. Also the first player to do it in a losing course. Um, the other two both got a win off the back of their tenfers, but uh, New Zealand fell to pieces after that and got bowled out for 62, so it was never, uh, never going to end well for them after that. Yeah, the first in the first innings of a test match, which makes it unusual there too. Mm. I suppose the first that involved DRS, and that that may not sound like a big thing, but the Coley dismissal, you know, he fucking smashed it. But the way the spike appeared on the screen, classic case of half a frame more or even a third of a frame more. And we would have had conclusive evidence either way, but the third umpire mm. was put into an incredibly tough spot in the absence of conclusive evidence with respect to the spike. He wasn't in a position to overturn it, mm. which 
I mean, of course, the naked eye, it looks like a very healthy inside edge, but you can't conclusively say that that inside edge wasn't earned at exactly the same time that the ball was just touching the side of the front yep. pad. You just can't know with the available evidence that we had. So, um, But still, yeah, I think that's a factor. I mean, just Patel, he doesn't play at home. He isn't even in, in, isn't even New Zealand's first choice spinner, really. I interviewed him um, after he uh, took a couple of wickets at Edgbaston earlier this year. And, you know, he's a sort of short, chubby fella who's very polite and very excited and very happy to be playing test cricket. I mean, he's 33 years of age. It's not as though he's been, you know, mainstay. He's not even the number one, usually the number one picked uh, left arm orthodox spinner. Often that's Mitchell Sartner. Only in recent times has uh, Ajaz Patel been in getting those opportunities to perform that role uh, as the first choice for New Zealand. So, yeah, kind of fascinating on, on a number of levels. You know, the fact that he didn't, bowl perfectly either. Jared Kimber wrote an excellent essay for his substack about this. I mean, he did kind of bowl inconsistently, but bowled enough wicket balls. I mean, the one to Pajara was an absolute beauty, the one that went through the gate after he came forward, for example. So, it's unusual too, when you kind of watch the highlights back of Anil Kumle or Jim Laker, it's just like you feel like it's the perfect game like with a, with a you know, um, you think of uh, darts a nine data. We talked about that on Storytime last week, didn't we? Or you talk about um, pitching the perfect game in baseball, or you talk about bowling the perfect game uh, in temp in bowling. Mm-hmm. Well, as Jerry Kimber explained in his Substack, this wasn't the perfect performance, far from it. And in fact, maybe it was the fact that Ajaz Patel didn't bowl perfectly that made him more potent. This idea that spinners who, we see mm-hmm. this a lot in T20 cricket, don't we? Spinners who are less consistent who don't land it in the same spot all day long, actually can be more effective and more of a weapon. Ajaz Patel had a bit of that going on for him in this innings, I reckon, which makes it all the more fascinating. Mm. Well, it was also that he didn't bowl the perfect innings because he didn't rip through India, you know. I mean, they're... Their opening partnership's 80, um, and, and he doesn't get past Mayank Agarwal in time. Agarwal makes 150 and, yeah. and bats through the best part of the innings. So, you know, the wicket doesn't fall until 80 are on the board. Then he goes very quickly through Shubman Gill, through Pajara and through Coley, but he's not able to keep ripping through players. So, they, you know, the, no one makes huge scores after that, but they're, they they put on big enough partnerships with Agarwal, with Shreyas Iyer and with Ritaman Saha and, and, and Akshar Patel makes a 50 as well. So even though he gets Ashwin first ball and runs through the tail... It, India still end up with too many runs. You know, they made 325. So they... It was like a 10 for that didn't prevent them from getting a match-winning score. So mm. it's not the perfect bowling performance in, in that sense, but it is a, a triumph of determination because he just had to keep wheeling away. He just kept at them until he eventually just squeezed everyone out. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And I, I love the, um, as often is the case with Test Cricket, I think we talked about this with the draw last week at, uh, at Kampur, when... When something special is happening, the text messages that start flying around, put on the cricket, put on the cricket. In my case, I was at the commercial club uh, and Paddy, mm. who uh, we love, who works behind the bar there, runs the pub, the publican there. I ran into the bar to watch the, the last wicket fall and there's that sense of euphoria around the bar that, you know, this will go down as one of the most memorable moments in modern Test match history. 
It's difficult to place it, isn't it? Because it was in a losing effort, as you said before. Mm. It wasn't the perfect performance. It isn't Jim Laker turning it square on a dust bowl at Old Trafford and, you know, the highlights that ensue. It isn't Kumlay doing it against Pakistan, mm-hmm. which was such a big thing in 1999. It's hard to know where to exactly place it, even against other sports. I mentioned those examples before. I mean, the perfect break in snooker or whatever it is, you know, the, 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 the nine perfect darts. And, and Jeff, you got into a bit of this on Twitter. I saw I was copied into it about the baseball perfect game. Mm-hmm. And it was put to you and put to us that uh, this is actually more frequent by percentage than the perfect game in baseball because they play mm-hmm. 162 games per year. But it still feels more special because it's one bowler as part of a crew of four or five compared to baseball when it's one pitcher yeah. operating in isolation for the whole match. Yeah, the pitcher isn't in competition with other pitchers unless they bring someone in from the um, from the bullpen, which you can have a joint perfect game. That has happened before where right. a relief pitcher comes in um, and continues pitching and continues not conceding any base hits. So there has been at least one instance, I think, of a shared perfect game. But I, I think it was, it was Gideon Haig's description of it as, as bowlers are carving up the one pie between themselves, whereas batters have the sky's the limit. They can keep running up runs as much as they want. So right, yeah. making 100 is often equated to taking five wickets, but in a way it's not because if you're making the 100, you know, unless it's in a, a constrained, limited overs chase, you're not usually dealing with someone else taking runs away from you that you then can't score. But that's how it works with, with wickets. If one other player takes one, then the quest for 10 fails but you also want any player to take one as soon as possible because you want to get the team out so yeah it's very different to the Laker and Kumble ones they're both bowling in the fourth innings with plenty of runs to defend you know they're they're attacking weapons this is India in the first innings at home this is effectively a defensive bowling display this is trying to limit the damage but also getting rid of every opposition player at the same time yeah the the um uh, I suppose the fact that it happened in the same match where Ashwin put on a clinic. You know, you know Ajaz Patel takes 14 wickets. Ashwin takes eight, including his 300th in India in Test cricket, which is just a, a staggering uh, a staggering stat that he passes along the way. But Ashwin couldn't have bowled much better, really. And Giant Yadav, who we've um, referred to recently, yeah. as being part of that uh, 2017 series against Australia in India. Yeah, Ashwin, I mean, after, as I mentioned before, missing out on all those test matches in England, he, he's not lost a single thing, as we've seen in this series so far. Well, let us say, well done, Ajaz Patel. From the final word, we have enjoyed your work, uh, enjoyed watching you in England earlier in the year, and now... Now you've done it. Uh, as, a, as a little foreshadowing, because we're going to hear from Sachin Dendulkar, not in person, but, but uh, passed on later in the show. Cheeky tweet from Sachin. He said, ah, what a great test match. Indians took wickets in all four innings. Oh, mm. gosh. So they're, they're trying to claim him already. Despite the fact that Ajesh Patel speaks with the most broad New Zealand accent you're ever going to hear. I know he was born in Mumbai, but he's, yep. he's, he's very much a Kiwi. Anyway, but well played Sachin anyway. Jeff, I think we have now done enough talking for the time being. But before heading off to a break, we should do some more talking, but do it instead in the form of a game we call. Nerd Pledge! Nerd Pledge. Yes, it's a game that we play with the lovely people on our Patreon page. They fund the show. They're the reason this show exists, and they do it by sending us contributions. And some of them may send us a a, a normal denomination of currency that 
you know, that doesn't have a significance particularly. It's a Julio pledge. They're not nerds. But some people send us a very specific number, a number that relates to cricket in some way, and we have to work out what it means. For instance, nerd pledger this week is Ben Finn. The number is two pounds and 73 pence coming in from the UK. So 2.73, which could mean... Any range of things could mean 273, 2.73, 27.3. But Ben sends a clue saying, had it been possible, my pledge would have been 2.728. So it's rounded up. Mm. Okay. Well, we've both had a swing at this. And I like how we've interpreted it differently as well. So 2728, I've gone with 27.28 with the bat. Now, that was my sort of first instinct. It's a shame in a way, though, Ben, mm-hmm. that it wasn't just 273 straight up because had it been, I could have told you a lot about dusty old bastard Hopper Levitt. I hope that someone pledges 273 into the future um, without a clue because that will mean I can tell that rather interesting tale uh, of a man who played one test match in 1934. Alas, 27.28 is the batting average of... Just, if I can just intervene there, could we try to um, give Joseph Gordon-Levitt the nickname of Hopper from now on? Would that, would that stick? I think I said to you already that uh, his show, uh, Mr. Corman, that was on Apple this year, is my favourite television show yeah. of 2021, and it's already been cancelled for 2022. He's not been renewed. But oh, anyway, poor old, poor old Joe. He's, he's one of my favourite people in, in all the entertainment industry. He's smart, got a good heart. Lives in New Zealand now as well, did you know? Okay, let's not talk about Joe Gordon-Levitt. Instead, let's talk about Alex Hales. His test batting average was 27.28. But I just, uh, even now, I feel like that was just a missed opportunity for England. I'll explain why. Um, He played 11 test matches in 2016 and was never able to nail down a spot. Actually, he made his debut uh, in the Boxing Day Test of 2015 as one of the myriad uh, partners that Cook had after Strauss finished up. That sounds bad, doesn't it? One of the myriad partners that that Cook had. Like, you know, he was just uh, rotating through them like he was on a Tinder Tinder run. But, yeah, he he got a couple of starts on test debut. Got 60-odd when batting at Cape Town in that that Ben Stokes test match the following week. So, you know, he's the logical guy to play in the home summer against Sri Lanka when Sri Lanka arrived. He had an okay enough series in South Africa and started the county season really well in 2016. Now, I was covering uh, those test matches against Sri Lanka and I just kept writing about Alex Hales Mm -hmm. repeatedly because he he was such a a fascinating character to me. The man who England overlooked for the majority of the 2015 World Cup despite looking like the most capable 50-over batsman they had until the bitter end when they were effectively bounced by Bangladesh in that quasi-quarterfinal. And now he's getting this opportunity at test level. But why I was so interested in him was that he wasn't batting like a white ball player. He was batting for hours and hours and hours. He started the series at Leeds. When England lost, I think, four wickets in the first session, he batted pretty much all day to make 86 from 206 deliveries. Then the next week at Durham, much the same. England lose early wickets and Hales uh, sticks it out, making 83 from 145. So a, a fraction better in terms of strike rate, but performing a, a similar role. Then at Lords in the third test match, which was Rain Mard, uh, he, he got 
actually, um, he, he fed into uh, the narrative that we've uh, discussed a lot with Adam Vogt just getting bowled from the no ball that wasn't. That also happened to Alex Hales. I think it was... Uh, I think it was Narwan Pradeep bowling. And he was called as having sent down a no ball that bowled Hales on about 70-odd. And it was shown afterwards on the slow-mo that he hadn't overstepped, but there was no recourse. Sri Lanka Mm. performed a little protest on the balcony by turning their flag upside down and sticking it on the edge of the the Lord's balcony, which I thought was quite creative at the time. Anyway, Mm. he he didn't get to 100 there either. They love a protest. They're good at at a protest, the Sri Lankans. They may have had a greater range of creative protests than any other team. <laughs> Including the pool party, of course. Uh, but then uh, Angelo Matthews, who I think was still captain of Sri Lanka at the time, blew his front pad off for 94. But still, that series, 86, 83, 94 in three tests, you know, they've won 2-0. You know, he's spot safe. He's probably England's second most important player in that series behind Johnny Bairstow. And you're thinking, like, they've finally worked this out. They've got the post-Strauss partner for Cook. Left hand, right hand. Nice tall player has gears to go through, but can also bat slowly, which is just as important, I suppose, when trying to bed down a reputation as a red ball player when, when you started off playing in, in limited overs teams. But then the wheels kind of fell off against Pakistan. Uh, their left arm seamers, specifically Mohamed Amir, got him out a number of times, but he didn't get him out at Edgbaston. Uh, at Edgbaston, England were in the third test, a great series. They, they, it was drawn 2-2. Uh, a Desmond, as people like to say. He made 54 in the second innings, batting with Cook when they wiped off the deficit of 100-odd from the first innings, which ended up being instrumental in England, having a a famous come-from-behind victory there to go uh, 2-1 up in the series. But the problem was he had a double failure at the Oval to finish, and that was it, the end of a a seven-test match summer, and England being England, that had sacked him then and there. And he never got an opportunity to play test match cricket ever again. He finished up with 573 runs, made five half-centuries in 11 tests. A strike rate, I mentioned before, quite low at just 40. 43.84, especially given that reputation, given what we've seen him do in white ball cricket. He got on a bit of a roll in 2017 in all three forms for knots. And I was, I think I wrote a piece for Crick Info arguing that they should pick him at number six for the Ashes. They should pick this guy um, actually to bat lower Mm. middle order and see what damage he can do. But they went with James Vince for the final batting spot in that team. And Hales has had his fairly well-documented struggles ever since, let's be honest. I mean, before the 17-18 Ashes, there was embargo. Uh, Of course, there was the the drugs incident that saw him omitted from the 19 World Cup squad. More recently, there was the um, what he described as a, a tribute to his hero, Tupac, which dropped on the same day as the uh, the Tim Payne knob out story. Um, I'll, I'll never forget the Alex Hales statement, though, and there have been a few over the years when he when he talks about Tupac. Is, was, and always will be his favourite musician, which is why he blackfaced in, in Tupac's honour back when he was a younger man. He's probably cooked right, for Right, because yeah, nothing says respect more than blackface. That is, yeah, yeah that's... Clearly, that's the most respectful. Yeah, whilst way what, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll choose my words carefully here. I think in 2011 we didn't quite have the same understanding of blackface as we do now. However, yes, viewed through any credible eyes, that was a very dumb thing for him to have done, and he's paying a price for that at the moment. So yeah, I think with Alex Hales for me, the Test cricketer who averaged 27.28, it's a bit of a story of what could have been uh, and a, a bit of a story of impatience from selectors when it looks like they might have been onto one there with five half centuries and then they kind of cut him off at the knees and you know I, I reckon they they went too early there maybe maybe but there is the counter that he did turn out to be a 
colossal knob and to have been a colossal knob all along. So, you know, even I was thinking over the last couple of years, there were times when I was like, Owen Morgan's got a bit too much say in that they've managed to absolutely pension this guy off um, despite being such a dangerous hitter. And uh, But say it just quietly now, maybe Owen Morgan was right. Maybe he knew more than we did. Yeah. Maybe he was right all along. Yeah, well, this is it, isn't it? I mean, you say colossal knob. I mean, the first thing that came out about Hales after the um, after the, the scandal in Embargo was all these Snapchats, which were pretty fucking ropey, you know, uh, sort of in the in the Tim Payne uh, world of of uh, of, uh, of, mm. uh, of of texting, albeit on the Snapchat forum where these messages disappear and all the rest of it. And look, I'm willing to accept that Hales has grown and matured since he's gone through so much shit. Um, remembering that we're talking about with the blackface 2011, we're talking about the drug sing, you know, as, yeah. as you as you we're argue well. We're also talking about someone who, who was implicated by uh, Azim Rafiq only a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, a- absolutely, absolutely. But I, I, the point I'm making is, is that I'm willing to acknowledge that as he has himself, he did some pretty stupid shit in his 20s and he's paying a massive, massive price for it in his 30s. But, yeah, if you can exclude that from this conversation purely as a batsman I reckon they've I reckon they've mishandled that and he could have offered more to England well uh, having looked at an international batting average I'll just very quickly note that in international bowling averages in any formats across men's and women's nobody has averaged 27.28 except for Matt Henry in six T20 internationals for the men and Lyre Francis in 11 women's ODIs for India uh, mostly at the 93 World Cup played the last ones in 95 but I, I particularly enjoyed her record because safe to say she wasn't there for her batting uh, an average of 2.6 in one dayers and 1.5 in test matches in tests four wickets and six runs that's a, a solid record but played four tests and they were all in 1995 one against New Zealand in a three-match series against England imagine a women's player being able to play four test <laughs> matches in a year. Imagine a world where that was possible. Well, there was one, and it was 1995. Take us back. Yeah, I, I suppose there'll be a number of uh, a number of cricketers who will get to play two this year. But I mean, with England, Australia, and in India well, they're, playing they're each other twice each. But but yes, uh, mm. the idea of that being expanded upon, we can only hope. Let us know whether we've got anywhere close to the pin with those answers, Ben Finn. Probably not, but the beauty of this show is we can revisit them on Storytime. It'll be a while. We're not doing any revisits uh, until uh, the ashes are finished. Our Storytime shows will be exclusively new numbers while we're working like 100 hours a week, but uh, our heart's in the right place and we'll keep making Storytime all the way through the Ashes series. And Because Ben... His name came up in the queue to be on the weekly show, Jeff. He wins the Brick Lane Brewing Slab, which means that he can uh, nominate uh, where a slab of Brick Lane goes to. It can go to himself. Uh, but given that he's uh, pledged in GBP, he probably won't be able to get it in England, which means that he can simply, the gift of giving at this time of year, yeah. he'll have a friend or a colleague or an acquaintance in Australia, and he can drop that slab on them just in time for Christmas. Yeah, don't drop it on them physically because beer is quite heavy, um, <laughs> even in cans and that would be quite painful uh, it's up to you to work out the economies Ben you could book a flight to Australia <laughs> and come here in order to get the free slab but that may not be a good economic decision on balance but you can send someone else uh, this case of Brick Lane they're particularly interested in making sure people know about the One Love Pale Ale which is all about bringing people together in the Australian summer and uh, another bit of good news is that anyone else can get 15% off 
if you go to the website, the link's in the show notes, and you put in the code, and the code is MARSH182 in honour of Sean's uh, epic 182 in Hobart, where we may see a test again, uh, and that will get you a sweet discount. There'll be Brick Lane at our live shows as well. Yeah, there will be. I just I said this on Storytime last week, but who's giving out a discount on beer in December? We are on the final word with Brick Lane. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I know myself when I've done Christmas dinner in the past, that can be quite an expensive part of the whole process when, you know, you, you're catering, you're buying beers for people. Why not buy it all online at bricklanebrewing.com and it means that you can tuck in you can cater for your family and your friends. You can get an unusual discount in December for the best beer in the world. We're just going to say it. Uh, it came, it came uh, <laughs> uh, on top of the podium uh, in a, a global competition recently, and that's good enough for us to say it is the best beer in the world. Another point here, I believe there are still some free four-packs going as well. We'll keep that link in the show notes as well. If you jump on and simply add your name to the Bricklay mailing list, you can get yourself a four-pack for free courtesy of our friends at Brick Lane. And one last point here, Jeff, uh, we're going to be spending some of New Year's Eve at the London Tavern, a Brick Lane pub in Richmond, where the Melbourne Football Club had the Premiership Cup yesterday after their um, celebrations at the MCG. I think John Northey used to own the London Tavern, I reckon I'm right in saying. So they all went back there, John Northey being the former Melbourne coach uh, who coached them to the 1988 uh, losing grand final. And our dear friend Shannon Gill, who has been on the show a number of times before, uh, has got himself a photo with the cup in there at the London Tavern. And that's where we'll be, uh, having lunch on New Year's Eve, recording our end of year spectacular uh, and having a bite to eat with all of you who want to come down and join us. So bricklanebrewing.com, all the information uh, about the discounts is in the show notes. After the break, we are talking to the BBC's Tim Peach and having a little round of Happy Birthday, Sachin. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Wisdom Cricket Monthly is not out this week. That happens next week. However, and it's a big mm-hmm. however, there is a new free digital mag out that we are promoting on the final word for the next couple of weeks, which is bringing together some of the best writing they've ever had in the magazine on the ashes before, new writing as well. And I stress this point, it's absolutely free. It's a digital magazine. It's a bit of an hors d'oeuvre of sorts. If you want to get yourself into the, the Wisdom family, if you've been thinking about subscribing and haven't as yet, what better time with an Ashes series around the corner to tuck into this Ashes special. It's all done through this website called Pocket Mags. It could not be easier to use. The link will be in the show notes. And all you'll need to do is click that, get sent straight through and have the best cricket mag in the world delivered to your tablet and you'll be able to tuck into some magnificent writing on the oldest rivalry in cricket. I think it's bigger than an hors d'oeuvre, um, or as they say in French, a horse d'oeuvre. I, I think it's. I think it's a main course. I think it's. Uh, I think it's a dessert as well. I think it's a. It's it's a ribeye fillet and and a, a serve of Il flottant, uh, put into a blender and and chugged up into a shake so that you can get it in you as, as quickly as possible. It's a uh, full length, stuffed full of great writers digital magazine and it's free. And it's just so that you can 
get ready for the ashes, get primed, think about previous ashes things, think about other times, think about people who've been there. So more than 100 pages of stuff, lots of exclusive interviews, predictions, previews, but also a lot of stuff looking back at the history of the contest, the key battles, the uh, the enigmas who have become known to us all through being part of this, the, the fastest bowlers going around. They've got a very strong quickviz analytical piece there on how to try to win in Australia. So this is interesting stuff from the quickviz data crunches to, to work out whether they can come up with a, a strategy that that could actually work and there's a, a huge amount of, of other stuff going around interviews with Ian Chappell and Ian Botham are not at the same time in the same room <laughs> funnily enough and I think the strides stayed on through the duration of those interviews tales about Ray Lindwall about Bob Willis about Dennis Lilly Steve Smith and all of the characters who've marked this contest and I've got to say Jonathan Liu's alternative history uh, around Shane Warne uh, is in the magazine and that might be the best and funniest cricket piece I've ever read in my life. So on that basis alone, please, please mm-hmm. download this magazine. There's comebacks, there's last-minute call-ups, there's scandals, there's captains resigning. Um, indeed, there was a captain resigning just a couple of weeks ago, which is featured in this magazine. This magazine will have it all. There are contributions from me, from historian Tom Holland, from uh, our dear friend Sam Perry from the Great Cricketer Podcast, another dear friend of the show, Alison Mitchell, who we've had on uh, in long form with us before. Uh, The brilliant comedian Tim Key, our excellent colleague at The Guardian, Rob Smythe, and dear Felix White. Uh, Everyone here, I'm just going through the list here. I like everybody on this list. Most of them have been on The Final Mm -hmm. Word at one stage or another. So in terms of a special one-off, if you love what we do on The Final Word, if you love Ashes Cricket, if you want to just dip your toe in the water of of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, this could not be a better time for it. If you're listening to this and you don't want to go into the show notes, pktmags, so pocketmags.com forward slash tfw pod it'll all be there click the link download the magazine get involved this is an absolute beauty hi i'm isha Gua, and you're listening to the final word with adam collins and jeff levin sachin 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 take it away jeff Happy birthday, Sachin. Jeff, it's been too long. The floor is yours. Well, everybody's favourite online birthday wisher, Sachin Ramesh Tendulkar. Uh, he's still at it. He can't stop and he won't stop. Uh, but it may have been a couple of months. I can't remember exactly when we last happy birthday, Sachin. But I think he had just enjoyed Shikapande's uh, in-swinger to knock over Elisa Healy back in October. So since then, a theory about Sachin having a spreadsheet with the birthdays is being underlined day by day, Adam, because we're starting to get onto repeats. We've obviously been doing this segment for over a year now and we're starting to circle around because I know I've seen Verinda Sewag get it before. I've seen VVS Lakshman get it before. I've definitely seen the Patan brothers uh, get birthday wishes before, but they all came up. Prithvi Shaw got a gong. Suresh Raina got one. Muhammad Kaif, I think it's nice that Sachin's still remembering Muhammad Kaif. He's not really in the in the same star bracket at the others. Um, the main thing I remember of him is not doing very much in the World Cup final in 2003. Ajita Gurkha got a gig. Uh, Shikhar Dawan got a happy birthday. A rare overseas signing 
for the happy birthday Sachin's Brett Lee got to mention the only non-former teammate of Sachin's and interestingly enough so Virat Kohli got a happy birthday and uh, well this could be I don't know if anyone's written up the scandal yet but Kohli Kohli brushed him no reply no quote tweet just just brushed it just let it let it go let it go through to the keeper you are duty bound if you get one of these tweets to the etiquette is to quote tweet isn't it I mean you know I see the way that Uh Harsha has to triage the happy birthday tweets when he finishes another Mm. lap around the sun and how diligent he is at effectively quote tweeting the people who you know you just you've just gotta he's not quote tweeting you know, uh, well, I, 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 I'm not so crude as to send him a birthday tweet. I send him a little WhatsApp because he's a close personal friend of mine. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but for those who, but for those Keep who flexing. do, but for those, <laughs> I just started using close personal friend. I can't stop using it. It's a thick of a thing. But you know, the, those who do the public display of affection to someone like Harsha mm-hmm. with the 10 million followers and all the rest of it, he needs to do the, you know, the bit. The fact that Coley hasn't mm-hmm. done the bit with mm-hmm. Sachin. That, to me, actually mm. is a story. That is a yarn. <laughs> Someone needs to chase that up. Is there a division between the greatest that there ever was and, and, and the man who might be his successor? Probably already is. <laughs> yeah, or, or might be if you could remember how to make 100 because it's, it's, uh, it's starting to be a very long time since that happened. Now, uh, there was also a... Well, not exactly a birthday because this gentleman's no longer with us, but a, a, a marking of the birth anniversary of Sri Satya Sai Baba, who who was a guru. Now, uh, I'll admit I just ripped this off Wikipedia, but uh, Sri Satya Sai Baba's believers credited him with miracles such as materializations of holy ash and other small objects like rings, necklaces and watches, along with reports of miraculous healings, <laughs> resurrections, clairvoyance, bilocation, <laughs> and he was allegedly omnipotent and omniscient. Multiple studies have concluded that his acts were based on sleight of hand or had other explanations. <laughs> Omnipotent and omniscient. I think like, I, I, I think I saw, is, <laughs> I think I saw someone at the QAnon rally on on Saturday alleging to have those uh, have those qualities. I, I, I found myself <laughs> well, in in the Melbourne CBD on Saturday afternoon trying to get from one side to the other. Not ideal. Uh, and there were a lot of grandiose claims going on. This 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 fits that criteria. Although this guy sounds like a better bloke. But but you know, living in India, a land not devoid of of suffering, and then claiming to be omnipotent and omniscient. I mean, that just runs you straight into the, the problem of evil as as defined by the Epicurean tradition, you know, as discussed by Hume, um, as, as very badly rebutted by Thomas Aquinas, that how can an omnipotent God exist if evil also exists? Because an omnipotent God could remove evil, could remove sickness <laughs> and pain and malady. And the fact that an omnipotent God does not do that means that the omnipotent God must be evil because they are choosing to let people suffer when they could remove all suffering. So, didn't you refer to my flex a moment ago? There's Jeff, you're just getting the biceps out right there. The intellectual <laughs> biceps out. Very nicely done. Well, I mean, it's a fairly basic, it's a fairly fundamental philosophical premise, the, the problem of evil. And so I, I feel that that should be brought up to Sri Satya Sai Baba's followers to say, well, what about this, champions? Uh, anyway, Dinesh Karthik <laughs> got a nice tweet because he had some twins. So he's got five kids now. Well done. Well, hang on. Would, it, would, it, would it Dinesh, uh, this is the test. Did Dinesh Karthik okay. get one last year before he was a mm. proper TV celebrity? This is the mm. test. Dinesh Kartik, all the fucking stupid signs saying, we love you, Dinesh. I think Dinesh Kartik's a great commentator, by the way, but the signs in the crowd, give me a spell. Mm. He 
is a much bigger star. Yeah, look, he's a snappy dresser. He's a snappy dresser. And he's a very, uh, a very astute commentator. But I wonder whether Sachin mm. felt the need to mark the birthday of Dinesh before he was a TV star. I, I, I might go back and check that. Well, this, this, this was the birth of Dinesh's twins. Um, so, uh, so this right, was a, right. a, a new addition to the family. But I don't recall seeing DK get a birthday gig before. So, And, you know, I've been watching this for a while. Maybe wrong, but I don't remember it. So Shreyas I got one for making a Test 100. Sachin said, nice to see you as part of Team India in whites. Whites was in inverted commas. Why? Why? What are you? What? What are you trying to say about? That's just what they called Sachin. Um, Ajas Patel, I mentioned, got one for his tenfa, yep. and uh, and there was a, a nice one. A congratulations to all of the winners of the National Sports and Adventure Awards 2021. What an awards ceremony! What are people getting adventure awards for? Are they you know, mountaineers and Thor Heyerdahl trying to cross the Pacific on a raft? Anyway, Sachin does some nice things. Donated some retinal cameras to a hospital. Did some sticking up for Mohammed Shami, so that was good. And the last bit of Sachinese that I, I'd like to sign off with was this, and I quote, I have always emphasised on the importance of partnerships. Sign up for the Aegeus Federal Life Insurance Mumbai Half Marathon and get your run buddies along as well, because when we run together, we go further. Oh. Wise words from Sachin Tendulkar. Happy birthday. Clip the ticket. Ka-ching on the way out the door. Good on you, Satch. Uh, we'll hear from you. Tendulkar. We'll hear from you again uh, after the ashes, I suppose. All right, final piece of the puzzle on the final word today. We are with the BBC's Tim Peach. Uh, Peachy works across uh, BBC Five Live, Test Match Special, the television highlights that you now see on the BBC as well. Welcome to the show, Peachy. And you've been a busy boy. Over the last year or so, you've been doing something that we all talk about doing and rarely do we actually get around to doing it, which is a long-term project in journalism. You've spent the last year or so um, cataloguing interviews with England players and support staff about the series that's starting in a couple of days from now. Yeah, we've been really lucky to have uh, amazing access to the England players, the coaching staff um, throughout the last 12 months. And it's all about the build-up to the Ashes. So we first spoke to Joe Root back in January when he was in Sri Lanka. He just scored a, a brilliant 100. I can't remember if that was... That was a double 100, actually. When, you know, we were 12 months out from the Ashes, just talking to him about his Ashes preparations, 12 months out, but we've spoken to loads of the players, Broad, Anderson, Wood. We've also spoken to Mark Wood's wife about what life is like being a family, you know, the partner of an England cricketer, but loads of the backroom staff as well about the planning, the nutrition, the fitness. And yeah, it's uh, all been available as a six-part podcast. Have you been able to stumble on any sort of patterns or trends or conclusions from these interviews? I mean, I know sometimes with with longer-term stuff, you can sense a bit of a rhythm to the way that, that, that people are thinking, or, or is it such that you get to hear and, and you really have no idea as to whether the planning is going to count for naught when they get to the Gabber in a couple of days? So I think there's quite a few elements to it. Certainly, they do so much planning. Part of it is, you know, England, more than probably any other team, play so much cricket. 
So one of the people we speak to uh, who's in quite a bit is Mo Bobat. He is the performance director for England. Basically, the way he describes his job is he works with Chris Silverwood. Silverwood works on the cricket that England are playing at the moment, and Bobat is planning on the next tours after that. So he is constantly planning two or three tours ahead. So he and Silverwood started about the same time in 2019, and the first thing they prioritised was this Ashes tour and the the World Cup around it. Now, obviously, they didn't know how the T20 World Cups were going to be moved around at the time, but they were their priorities. So they did loads of long-term planning, and this was involved things like getting the England Lions out uh, two years ago, again, pre-pandemic, to play an unofficial test match in the MCG. So players like... Dan Lawrence, Zach Crawley, Dom Sibley had all played at the MCG. So they wouldn't be making their sort of Australia debut in the Ashes. Um, So there's lots of things like that. But, you know, it's a year in English cricket. So much can go wrong. You know, they when we first spoke to them, you know, you're not planning to have... You know, bring in a test debutant who you have to suspend after one day of a test match. You're not planning on having to quarantine an entire squad due to a COVID outbreak. You're not, you know, you're planning to, if you've got five test match, uh, in, matches in a series planned, you're hoping you'll play all five, not have one binned off on the morning of the test. So there's a lot of planning that goes in, but, you know, they also have had to be, as they would say, dynamic and reactive. Tim, it's great to have someone else on the show whose last name is a fruit, um, just to begin with. But uh, one of the weird things that kept happening this year, and this was something we were quite critical of, was someone like Chris Silverwood talking about preparing for the Ashes all the time. You know, playing New Zealand, who were playing in the World Test Championship final, was preparation for the Ashes. Playing India was preparation for the Ashes. Everything was preparation for the Ashes. This Ashes was just preparation for the next Ashes. That may sort of gel for someone who's a coach, but for a player, for someone like Root, was he thinking about preparing for the Ashes a year ago in in January? Was there anything that he could practically be doing? And was he thinking about that to the detriment of, well, I guess not to the detriment of what he was doing at the time, given he was scoring so many runs? So it's interesting, like speaking to a lot of the backroom staff, it's clear they have got a lot of planning around the Ashes. And when we spoke to Root in Sri Lanka, you could tell he was sort of thinking about the Ashes. And he said, we asked him, for example, had he got uh, a starting 11 in mind for the Gabba? In, back in January, and he said no, he got a, a squad in mind. Now, there will clearly be players who were in his January squad who aren't there. You know, Dom Sibley would be an obvious one, but also players who are there now, maybe Hamid or Milan or Robinson, who weren't in his January squad. But, you know, we spoke to Mark Wood soon after they came back from India back in April, and he said, and this surprised me, But he said, yeah, of course we're thinking about the Ashes. We're planning about it. And he said in uh, in India, he did some work with Paul Collingwood on his batting, just trying to face that shorter length sort of coming up a bit higher that you would expect to face in Australia, which I thought was really interesting. Sort of eight, nine months out of the Ashes, he's already planning for something as, you know, as small as his batting in Australia. When he's in India, he's planning that already for Australia. So, you know, and you're right, there is a valid criticism of English cricket, and we obviously have to take 
a large element of that in the media as well by when there's a five test series against India, not seeing that for what it is and looking at that in the ashes. And you could say this project is the ultimate thing of that, of just talking about the ashes. But it clearly is there for the players as well. I'm interested in in, in just diving a bit deeper into Ollie Robinson on the basis that uh, you mentioned he he was effectively suspended after one day of his international career. Uh, Interesting that you didn't think that he might not be part of that initial squad, given he did play and play very well at the MCG in that pink ball, uh, in that pink ball first class game the Lions played a couple of years ago. Indeed, it's almost the perfect full circle for them because it's in all probability going to be at Melbourne where they finish the series this year uh, with a pink ball test match. But but with Robinson and, and the arc with him, was your sense documenting this through the year that uh, even though there was those uh, well-discussed indiscretions when he was younger, that they were always thinking this guy's going to be there in Australia? Yeah, I think so. But, I mean, of the interviews that we did earlier on and before he made his test debut, certainly in the first half of the year, when people were talking about England's bowling attack, the main sort of narrative of it was having these three super-fast bowlers that they are going to hit Australia with, and they were Mark Wood, Joffre Archer, and Ollie Stone. And it's easy to, you know, we people have talked a bit about Joffre, but it's easy to forget Ollie Stone as well, who played the first test, uh, sorry, second test against New Zealand, but he also played out in India. In fact, for the series, he did a bit of a, an audio diary for us of that India series of when he was, you know, uh, he played, I think, was it the second test? And he was telling us about how he arrived on the morning of the test match and didn't even know he was playing. It was between him and Wokes and, you know, two teammates at Warwickshire. And Root just came up to him on that morning and said, right, you're in, mate. Well done. So, you know, the, the narrative was more about those three fast bowlers being rotated round rather than you know, much about Ollie Robinson. And don't forget that Robinson, who spent a lot of time in and around the squad, particularly with co- uh, the COVID squads from last year, the bigger squads, you know, the same could be said for James Bracey as well, who came in, made his test debut and didn't perform well. So I think, yes, you're right. Robinson was sort of there or thereabouts, but they've had sort of quite a few players who they have sort of been investing in. Another one worth mentioning is Dan Lawrence. Mo Bobat said to us about how England are aware that when batters debut in an Ashes test, particularly in Australia, they don't tend to do so well. So they, with Dan Lawrence, there's someone who they have looked at as someone who could well be part of their Ashes plans. And they thought, let's see if we can get him to start his test career earlier. He's a great player of spin. So they gave him his test debut back in Sri Lanka in January. That shows how even back in January, they've got their Ashes plans in mind. Here's someone who will be great to have part of the squad with some test experience. Let's get him in playing some tests early on. How cooperative and and how open do you think the players particularly were with you, given that they would know that this is something that wasn't going to come out until later, but they would also know it was going to come out before the Ashes and anything they said on this sort of show could be picked up, could be used against them, um, could be used tactically against them, could create a a, a media storm about a comment they made or that sort of thing. Um, How much reassurance did you have to give and how open do you think they were? Well, I mean, you know, a, a lot of this is based on trust and sort of relationships. So, you know, for example, when we spoke to uh, Joe Root in 
January, we did ask him, you know, who are those players you've got in mind? And he didn't want to say, understandably, because, you know, he is fully aware that come December, the Dom Sibley didn't make our squad line or whatever would be, would, you know, Sibley will read that as well. I mean, I'm sure he knows. But, you know, someone like Mark Wood, for example, we went up to see him and his wife, Sarah. It was back in April. Uh, They'd not long come back from India. It was when restaurants and cafes were just opening up, so he had to sit outside. It was freezing cold in Durham. But he was, you know, both of them were really candid about what life is like as a cricketer and being the wife of a cricketer as well. Particularly, they've got a two-year-old, Harry. But, yeah, there are a few things that Mark Wood said that sort of picked, you know, were picked up a bit in Australia. He said this thing about, you know, we're, we're fed up of hearing about the baggy green, we'll have our baggy blues on, we'll want to stick one up them. Now, that, that got a bit of pick-up in Australia, but... Yeah, I think he doesn't mind that at all. And there are a couple of other comments. But for Mark Wood, the Ashes mean so much to him. He took the wicket that won England the Ashes back in 2015. He hasn't played an Ashes test since 2015. He wants to be there. Uh, Tim Peach, you've been a busy boy. It's called Project Ashes, detailing England's behind-the-scenes preparations for the Ashes. It's accessible in all the usual BBC places, not least the BBC Test Match Special podcast feed. Thanks for coming on the show today to tell us a little bit about it. Cheers, thank you. Hi, I'm Matt Renshaw and you're listening to the Final Word podcast. Final Word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, as we say goodbye before the Ashes starts. I'm not in the predictions game because I've been made a fool of many times on that, but let me just say, as we say uh, farewell today, that all I want uh, from these two mediocre Teams, well, I say two mediocre teams, two mediocre batting lineups, is for there to be so much volatility that our daily shows are quite interesting. Uh, you'll be able to pick them up on the feed every single day. We're also collaborating with The Guardian on those. That It ends up in a situation where the teams are either one all or two all uh, going into the day-night decider at the MCG in front of 95,000 people. That's all I really want. Now, there's not been a competitive Ashes series in this country where it's gone all the way to the wire since 82 83. This is the year, Jeff. I'm certain of it. <laughs> That's all you want. All you want for Christmas. <laughs> I just want you for my own more than you will ever know. Squeeze <laughs> it, but it's true. All I want for Christmas is 3 2. 3 2 in any direction. That that would be fine. Yes. Look, I I mean what I want and what, what I know I won't get is a few weeks free of infantile jingoism bullshit flag waving cardboard fists horrible headlines from atrocious websites. I'd love all of that. We probably won't get it. We definitely won't get it. But look, maybe the cricket will happen. More importantly, I mean, I just, I've really felt like the cricket matters less. You've got two joints running cricket in their respective countries that are both so cooked in their own ways that will not get out of their own way, that will not actually bite the bullet and do things that are difficult to make things better rather than trying to to be seen to be making things better while not actually having to make any hard decisions. I'm over it. And the fact that there's, that the cricket is starting, look, it's nice, but they are hoping that we will all just watch the cricket and stop talking about the other stuff. And uh, that's what I don't want to happen. 
We'll try and find a way to do both on the final word. We'll be with you every day of the series in all the usual places. Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, as we say goodbye, we thank Bad Producer Productions, not least Dave Collins, and we also thank our friends at Brick Lane who are looking after us at the moment. The discount is Marsh182 to get 15% off. All that's in the show notes. And we also thank uh, Wisdom Cricket Monthly. If you are already a subscriber to Wisdom Cricket Monthly, tuck into the new mag. If you're not, then please do. It's free. It's beautiful. It's some of the best cricket writing in the world. And it's all there on a platter for you inside the show notes as well. Okay, goodbye from us. Next time you'll hear from us, we'll be stumps on day one at the Gabba. Look out. Bye. See ya. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail, had to fall just for what I did well. And there's some stories I can tell you. Thanks for listening to the Final Word Cricket Podcast. All of Adam and Jeff's previous episodes are available at finalwordcricket.com, including Storytime 20. That's 40 story times ago. 40. Almost a year's worth of nerd pledge. Why Storytime 20? Because it features comedian Will Anderson. It's a great chat. I think you're going to love it. FinalWordCricket.com for all things Final Word. And thanks once again to our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Shop online at BrickLaneBrewing.com. Thanks for listening. More from Adam and Jeff real soon.